Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! In today's episode, we're visited by the eminent ethnographer and public sociologist, Michael Borovoy. Michael has served as president of both the American Sociological Association and, more recently, the International Sociological Association. He's also known throughout the world for having engineered the extended case method, an ethnographic technique by which researchers explore big, macro-structural themes through a close look at singular cases. We asked Michael exactly how he goes about connecting global forces to seemingly local social movements, and we also explore some of the major challenges confronting the discipline and the public university today. Well, Michael Bourvoy, welcome to Office Hours. Great to be here. I so, use usually I giving office hours. This is great to, <laughs> to come to your office hours. So, Michael, you've written a great deal about some of the social problems that seem to be driving transformative movements um, all around the globe today. So, around what common issues do you see these movements arising, and where do you see new possibilities for social change? Yeah, I, I my my position uh, is that that we are living in well, what other people call the era of neoliberalism, I call it third wave marketization, and that that third wave marketization is affecting almost every place in the world and creating, uh, stimulating many of these movements, even though they get expressed nationally, nonetheless these movements, many of these movements anyhow, are responding to the ways in which labor finance, uh, nature, and knowledge have all been commodified in different ways. So I think of these movements in relationship to the commodification of these, what, the, what, what Karl Polanyi calls fictitious commodities. So it's the experience of marketization that we have to really take very seriously. And that's how I see these movements. Though, as I say, they are all express themselves very often in the political realm. Yeah. And where do you see some of the new and exciting possibilities for social transformation? Uh, well, yes. Well, I think that most social transformation is being driven by the character of capitalism. And that seems to be increasingly out of control. Particularly these social movements, though they may be a response to many of the challenges of neoliberalism, they turn out not to be able to direct change in in the ways that they envision. So one of the sad, sort of tragic stories is to watch these social movements unfold and to see the consequences. So in the Middle East, some of the Arab uprisings, Arab of 20, basically 20, late 2010, 2011, um, we see now how they have rejigged relations in the Middle East in many ways, and we see all sorts of problematic things going on. I spent, I've been, I went to been to Egypt for example twice, and one sees, you know, the overthrow of Mubarak, the great hopes that that brought, the, the opening of democracy, and now we're back to a square one, with a new sort of militarized regime. So. Yes, yeah, so these movements haven't really controlled uh, the consequences of their interventions. And 
so so where does one but what but what but still they they there is a new consciousness as a come with these movements so there is a sense in which the world doesn't have to be the way it is that's that's progress and that, and that even in Egypt today you know you go back to Egypt now it's 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 politicized in a way that it wasn't five six years ago so these movements have a continuing legacy of the possibility of change though the world seems to be governed by sort of the irrationality of capitalism at this point in time and it's not clear that anybody really controls it which is a very dismal scene mm. so it's one thing for social scientists to identify global themes mm. but how do you investigate the degree to which participants in these social movements see themselves connected to an international struggle around some of the problems that we're talking about yeah well, I, th I think that's. I think I think it's very important to study social movements. I think we should build a whole new sociology on the basis of social movements for a number of reasons. But one reason is, that I think social movements do express the character of the age. So examining social movements not just as how on earth are they possible, which has been the sort of the main impetus behind social movement theory, particularly in the U.S., is to see social movements as, as, as for example, Alain Turenne saw social movements as the foundations of a general sociology, to see social movements as an expression of the age, a way of actually understanding the characteristics of an age from below, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's one reason why one should study these social movements. And another is that they do... Uh, not only express the age, but they express the hopes of a of a, of, of alternatives, and uh, so and and the alternatives are engendered by the sort of collective engagement of the members of the social movement. So I I, I, th I think partaking in social movements is a very important uh, methodological uh, uh, strategy. Um, but you ask a question also about social movements own capacity to recognize connections across mm -hmm. national boundaries well, as I said before many of these movements I think most of these movements are actually framed nationally they are aimed at uh, issues that are raised at a national level and um, often uh, are concerned with very specific national issues however these issues are closely connected so if you look at the middle east they are concerned movements have been concerned with the era of dictatorship and the possibility of overthrowing dictatorships um, in latin america the movements are closely connected to environmental problems they are also connected to uh, common ideas about the extension and deepening of democracy um, in Europe, Southern Europe, you have movements, Indignado's movement around austerity. So these, these, all these movements do have sort of regional complexion, but they're all actually still engaged nationally. But there is, there is a sort of contagion effect. Um, you know, if we go around in the Midwest, you know, when there was the struggles in Wisconsin around public sector employees and trade union recognition and Governor Walker and so on, that there was connections to Cairo and so that there are there are these connections, but connections are not doesn't don't 
don't imply necessarily any sort of solidaristic transnational movement. That is really hard to sustain. I think actually the transnational movements were str the, of, the, of the 1990s were stronger than the ones of the last five or six years, the anti-globalization movements of that period. And these are, as I say, much, much more organized at a national level. So as I say, they're connected, but um, that doesn't mean that they are sort of building uh, sort of transnational visions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, though if there is a transnational vision, I think it revolves around ideas of democracy and the deepening of democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and, but what underlies all these movements, I would still claim, is the fact that they do face a very common, uh, a common movement of marketization. Mm -hmm. And so that extends into all arenas of society. <laughs> yeah. So, Michael, you're obviously pretty well known throughout the social sciences for pioneering a, a particular method of investigating broad, general social themes mm. through a particular case and local experiences. Mm. So can you explain how this method, what you call the extended case method, mm. can help us understand issues of such a global magnitude? Oh, uh, yes. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, I, together with a... Uh, a number of graduate students I had at the time, including Teresa Gowan of your own department, we, we, we decided that we would collectively write a book. Well, I decided, actually, because mm -hmm. I was made chair of the department at the time for reasons that still bewilder me. But anyway, I was a chair of the department. I was grounded. I couldn't do any field work. So I, I had around me PhD students who were doing all sorts <coughs> of interesting work in different places. So I said, okay, we're going to write a book called Global Ethnography, and we're going to figure out what on earth it means. The title comes first, and then we're going to figure out, it's not usually the way things are done, but that's how we did it. And so that's how this idea began. Can ethnography be global? Most people who do ethnographic work, particularly in the United States, think of ethnography as concerned with the micro. And, you know, you think of people like, you know, right in the tradition of, I don't know, uh, Goffman, Irving Goffman, and so very sort of enclosed situation. It's wonderful stuff, but always enclosed. And, and I'd always argued that, and it was, that this was very weird, that basically why should one bracket the context of these micro situations? And uh, so I've always argued that, one yes, one studies the micro, but one studies the micro actually from the standpoint of the macro and tries to understand what are the macro conditions for the micro sociology, micro processes. So now much of my work is, all my work has been of that character. Study a workplace and then see how that workplace is shaped by politics, by the forms of market and so on. And uh, so the question is whether you could really extend the micro to the global. Well, it's not easy, um, but there are there are lots of obvious examples in the world today of precisely doing that. For example, one can think of uh, call centers, right? So you have I have student, for example, uh, Aya Fabros, who did a study, amazing study of a call center. She was there in the Philippines in Manila in the call center as a participant observer, and had to begin to think about the global context of that call center. After all, the call center is created in a relationship to U.S. enterprises or multinational enterprises. Um, so once you recognize what the call center is, you are forced willy-nilly to think about something global. 
So that's that's what we used to call in the global ethnography, looking at it, looking at globalization as a force. In this case, the force of capitalism is shaping the character of work um, in, in in the Philippines. Could be call centers, it could be special economic zones, it could be all sorts of things. Another way is to think about globalization in terms of connections across national boundaries. That's perhaps the prototype of a global ethnography. And there, the obvious cases are those of migrant labor. So people studying, you know, in the book Global Ethnography, Sheba George studied nurses in Chicago and then was compelled by myself and the rest of the group to actually go back to Kerala, where the nurses came from, and to actually see, you know, how it was that they were being generated and how it was that the kin came also to Chicago, parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts came to Chicago to look after the children and the ways in which, you know, films and videos were actually transmitted across national boundaries. So they, she developed, by going back to Kerala, she developed an understanding of the transnational character of that migration. But then we have studies of migrants from Mexico. Um, so study one end. I think the interesting thing is to study the other end. So you're forced to look at both ends of the migration stream mm -hmm. and it carries you across national boundaries. Mm -hmm. So start, you, know, you, you start with your ethnographic project, but you don't stop there. You, you follow people, ideas, and also you can think of global ethnography as, 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 also, as also investigating new visions of how the globe is organized, how... Uh, people have different visions of, uh, for example, somebody, you know, is, is, is uh, Fidan El Cholio, a student at Berkeley, is now studying immigrant politics, pro-immigration and, 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 and the restrictionist, and how the actual visions of these political groups entail uh, uh, a particular understanding of the place of the United States in the world. Mm -hmm. The restrictionists think that everybody wants to come to this promised land and and the, the pro-immigrants think, oh, the United States is this dominating force that is actually generating the very problems that bring people to our bounds. They have different visions of... So that's another way to think about global ethnography is the transformation of people's consciousness of the world. So there are many ways, as you can see, there are many ways in which one can that one can explore uh, global ethnography and move from the micro to the global. And how do you think this kind of sociology that you describe um, can help us understand these movements um, and these processes while also promoting social justice? Oh, <laughs> while also promoting social justice. Promoting who's who's doing the promoting of social justice in your question the sociologists mm. or the movements the sociologists the sociologists mm. Yes Well, let me first say that you know one can study social movements um, Well, first of all we have to recognize that many of the movements today and it's becoming increase increasingly apparent is that they are movements that we would say perhaps are not for social justice but against social justice i mean there are progressive and less progressive social movements many of the movements today um in reaction to marketization are of a reactionary character or at least what sociologists would regard as reactionary um 
Yes, how does the sociologist, how does the sociologist promote social justice? Well, one way, of course, is for the sociologist to collaborate with movements whose project is one of social justice, to collaborate with labor movements, and there's a lot of interesting work in, in, in this country. You know, for example, somebody like Ruth Milkman has, has studied with her students, first in UCLA and now in CUNY in New York, has basically studied the ways local labor movements um, have built alternatives to trade unions through work centers and trying to understand and, and not only understand but to project an imagination of what a labor organization might mean in this world of third wave marketization when conventional union organizing is facing a very big challenges and obviously diminishing. So it's collaborating with but also extending the imagination of you might my 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 good friend eric olin wright for example believes in real utopias mm -hmm. and it's a very important idea the idea that actually uh, social movements um or uh, are not necessarily social movements groups of people organizing uh society in new ways uh that contain ideas that um, challenge the sort of basic principles of, of marketization and of capitalism. He, he writes about, for example, universal incomes grant the possibility that everybody can be given a basic wage that uh, will mean that those who employ people have to uh, give them more than that basic wage and have to they have to incentivize they have to promote promote better working conditions now, this is an idea that is floating around many places in the world or cooperatives or one of his favorite ones wikipedia you know as a collective self-organization or participatory budgeting in which sort of members of a municipality will actually partake in defining exactly what the local budget should be used for and that's something that also is appearing in different places in the United States. I mean there are all these, so these ideas of real utopias is another way in which sociologists can actually promote ideas that the world does not have to be organized um, in the way it is, that there are real alternatives. I think that's one of the features of third wave marketization is to obliterate the possibility and uh, of, of alternatives, the imagination of alternatives. So I think the sociologist should spend a lot of time mm -hmm. trying to elaborate those that actually exist in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a few examples of the way we can partake in expanding social justice. Yes, yes. But I'm not saying that all sociologists should do that. Uh, that we need all sorts of different sociologists, but you know, but many so many people come to sociology precisely because they are concerned with questions mm -hmm. of social justice. So we should be, you should be asking that question of everybody who comes here to be interviewed, and uh, and we should also be thinking about answers to that question. And how do you think the social sciences themselves have been impacted by this, uh, what you call third wave marketization? Uh, Oh, yes. yes. Well, I, the way I approach it, see, one of my fictitious commodities, one that Polanyi did not talk about, is knowledge. Knowledge, actually, the production and dissemination of knowledge is being privatized, and the university is increasingly being privatized. The university where we 
you know, do our social science um, is uh, being subject to hard budget constraints. It has been told it must actually increasingly produce the means of its own existence. And this has had devastating consequences for the public universities. As we all know, it means, you know, that universities uh, seek ever greater funds from students. So student fees go up. But it also means the universities become like a corporation. It is now looking for money from everywhere, whether it be other corporations that are going to fund its research, whether it's alumni. So university basically develops... Uh, <sighs> develops an itself as a sort of advertising agency. And the corporatization of the university is something that we are all feeling slowly but and surely, more rapidly in some places than in others. So it becomes a money-making operation. This has devastating consequences for social sciences, particularly for sociology. I mean, what, you know, how can sociology make money for the university? Who wants to invest in sociology? And perhaps in the 1960s and 70s, people thought that this was a reasonable investment. But today, it's rather more difficult. And so what we are still lucky in the United States is not true in other countries, but in the United States, we still have lots of undergraduates who want to do sociology for some reason. Uh, let's not go into it, but they're, they're there, they're there. So uh, we can actually sort of justify our existence because of the way we sort of attract students, which is great. Um, so we can survive, but still, you know, the university as a whole is changing and um, we are becoming subject to all sorts of new criteria of evaluation. And as I say, it's less developed here in the United States and more, more in countries like England, but even more in places like, I mean, in Africa, universities are just disappearing um, outside South Africa. You know, they just cannot sustain themselves um, in, this, in this era where they're supposed to be self-funding. So. Yeah, it's social science is, 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 is really changing. And what, what is important is that the economics, of course, is in a sense the idea has provided the ideology for the privatization of the university. And they are doing quite well. They're very clever, these economists, because basically what they have done is create something called the economy. I mean, it's a fictitious idea. Not a commodity yet, but perhaps even a commodity. But anyway, it's a fictitious idea that they have created. We all now believe there is something called the economy. And it happens is that the economists have a monopoly of knowledge over this economy, this idea of the economy. And so they are able to actually sell themselves in ways that sociologists can't. And the political scientists seeing this have decided that they too want to become economists. So they are sort of... Uh, they... they, they, they are organizing, have been organizing, reorganizing their discipline increasingly in a sort of, uh, as a sort of branch of economics. Now, there have been movements in sociology to do this, but they have failed, in my view. Um, failed because the whole tradition of sociology has always been against utilitarianism, against marketization or extreme forms of marketization. So we have sustained ourselves as a critique. So my belief is that we should continue to sustain ourselves as a separate discipline from 
economics and political science. If there were to be, as some people argue, like Emmanuel Wallerstein says, that we should have a single social science, that would be a disaster because that single social science would be economics and we would disappear. We have at this moment in history a real interest in sustaining sociology as an autonomous enterprise and um, that is really rooted, as it always has been rooted, I would argue, in the existence of civil society. And it's, so it is basically a standpoint on the world from the point of view of civil society and critical of the overextension of the state and the overextension of the market. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very important for us to sustain that position in this period, though it means that we are, in a sense, as critics of what is going on in the world are in a very defensive position because in a sense in this world where financialization and whether you can sell yourself is important we have it's not clear who our clientele is that is why if i may draw the conclusion of this argument is that is why actually we have to find clients out there we have to recognize there are publics out there that are also facing the consequences of third wave marketization and that we have to sort of in a sense as a matter of survival, we have to build connections to those publics. Hence the importance, yes, of public sociology. This is, a, not, this is not a political move. This is a survival move. Mm -hmm. And we have to, in a sense, rethink as sociologists the very meaning of the university to counter this privatization. I know I'm going on a bit. It doesn't matter. But you know, it, it, we have to actually sort of reconstitute the very meaning of the, of the university as something that is not uh, uh, selling itself to the highest bidder, but as an entity that is accountable to publics, not just to corporations. Right. Okay, Eric. Yes. So, so finally, wrapping up, um, wondering about your observations and how these processes are operating around the globe. Um, particularly, you served as president of the International Sociological Association. So, from your perspective, how might American researchers better engage with scholars around the globe, and how can we together kind of create um, what you've kind of called a, a global sociology? Cool. All right. Um, well, first of all, U.S. sociologists should know there is something called the International Sociological Association, and they should seriously consider actively participating in it. We have forums, we have congresses, we have journals, and I've started a magazine four years ago called Global Dialogue. Um, there are lots of ways in which they come. We have actually 55 research committees in the ISA, and actually there are a lot of US sociologists are involved in, in that, but there could be more. Um, so, yes, I want to point out that there is this entity called the ISA, International Sociological Association, that does have a global vision on sociology. And over the last, well, it was, it was born in 1947, 49, one or the other, um, and... Uh, since then, it has included uh, participation from ever greater numbers of countries outside Europe and the United States. So that's one thing, um, is that, but the, other, but the real thing, if we are thinking of this as a, the audience of this conversation is a, as, as a U.S. audience, um, you know, the trouble with U.S. sociology, it thinks that the U.S. often, often thinks that the U.S. is the world. This is very risky because the United States, if you spend any time elsewhere in, in the world, then you know the United States is a very strange and 
weird place, uh, as well as being a very powerful, resourceful country. So I think the first thing that we have to be much more conscious of the distinctiveness of the United States. The danger is that we take what is very particular in the United States and make it universal. But actually what we have to do in a sense is, is provincialize US sociology in a sense, or other people say deprovincialize, but basically the idea is to make US sociology much more aware of how particular it is. I think that we are, as US sociology, becoming ever more conscious of the particularity of the United States because we are engaged ever more in comparative studies. Mm -hmm. And so that, of course, makes it very clear how strange the United States is. So that's, so first of all, there is an institution. And secondly, we have to sort of recognize that we are part of the world and the world is actually invading us. Um, and that the U.S. sociology needs to needs to be more self-conscious of its place in the world and of its distinctiveness as a country. I think that would advance sociology tremendously. Um, but it is also the case. I suppose this is my last third point is that we have to be very conscious of how incredibly concentrated the resources, academic resources, in the world are in this country. It, the, the, the figures are staggering of, of, of how important is U.S. sociology. And we're not always that conscious of how powerful we are. And uh, that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a really important matter. Because, of course, if you are in India or in China or in Brazil, perhaps less so in Brazil, let's say Chile, um, you may be critical of U.S. sociology because the issues of U.S. sociology are not necessarily the issues of those countries. Um, but on the other hand, when sort of Harvard says, well, here's it, I'll give you a fellowship, off they go, right? So, you know, and, 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 and often, you know, the foreign students, you know, can see the conditions of work here are so superior to anywhere else in the world, at least in the elite universities and the research universities, they want to stick around here. So it actually sort of reproduces that inequality. Um, but we should, we should be aware and there's this, 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 and that is really what sort of U.S. academia thinks of itself as very distinguished and sort of naturally talented and brilliant, and doesn't quite recognise how that distinction is being produced. And it's not like a Gramsci's notion of hegemony in which the U.S. is dominant and somehow makes concessions with other countries. It is, a, it is a process of distinction. And there are all these ranking systems that are all designed to show how the best universities in the United States are indeed the best in the world and their world-class universities. Increasingly, countries outside the U.S. have to brand their universities in this ranking system that has devastating consequences for their social science, their sociology. In South Africa, you know, they, they're trying to have, you know, two or three of their universities, world universities. What does that mean? The faculty have to produce what? Articles that will be published in the North, in the American Journal of Sociology. Well, that's bloody difficult. You know, if you send an article on South Africa in the American Journal of Sociology, they say, well, yeah, we do know where South Africa is, um, and we perhaps can get some reviews, but basically those articles have still got to be in, a sort of in the framework of U.S. sociology. That may not be the framework that's best relevant to South Africa. So there is, there is a way in which we, we are developing a singular 
field of higher education in the world, which has devastating consequences in the social science in the sense that it is actually putting local sociologists in a bind. They are, on the one hand, want to participate in this field, but that draws them away from their sort of locality, their accountability to the local publics. And uh, as my friend Sari Hanafi puts it, he says that publish globally, perish locally. Publish locally, perish globally. So, you know, these intellectuals are really in, in a bias. Can they do both? They have to do both, but we don't. So um, there is a... Yeah, there is a, there's a real challenge at this point. That globalization is really actually posing deep challenges for, for how to constitute something. And we should become sensitive to this. We should be examining it um, as, 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 as we become absorbed in the globe, we should examine our, the conditions of that insertion. Ah, okay, that's enough of that. Yes, very good. Well, Michael Borovoy, thank you for stopping by Office Hours. Thank you very much, Eric, for having me.